in verse 1. Paul says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or you do despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the jew first and also to the greek but glory honor and peace to everyone who works what is good to the jew first and also to the greek for there is no partiality with god and father we humbly ask and pray for the assistance of your holy spirit for each one of us, Lord, we all acknowledge that apart from you, Jesus, you said that we can do nothing. So we acknowledge that as we open the word of God this morning to want to understand it and to hear the voice of you speaking to us personally. Lord, we ask that you would give to us that preparation and heart and soul and mind in a way that only you can Help us to be alert and attentive and even just to have an expectant heart to anticipate that there's something that you want to say to each one of us through your living and powerful word. So bless your word this morning, we ask, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak personally and just prophetically into each one of our lives this morning. And we look to you to do such in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I heard a story of a woman who was racing through the airport, rushing to catch her flight last minute, and on her way, just barely boarding the plane, she quickly grabbed a magazine and a bag of cookies. She didn't have time to stop for something more to eat, and just getting onto the plane last minute, she plopped down in an aisle seat, uh, leaving the seat between her and the person uh, in the window seat open. And as she sat down there, she just kind of dropped her stuff quickly as the plane was preparing to take off and being rather hungry from rushing through the airport, not having time to grab an adequate meal. She then uh, grabbed uh, that bag of cookies and opened it up, uh, sat it in the seat right there in the middle between her and the man uh, at the window seat. And as she opened it and took a cookie and began to eat them, she noticed out of the corner of her eye that this stranger in the window seat reached over and took out a cookie himself, began to eat it. And she was a bit puzzled and honestly somewhat uh, kind of frustrated that he would have the audacity to do such a thing. And but just overlooked it and thought maybe he thought he was getting away with something there. So she proceeded to to eat another cookie. Lo and behold, after she took one, he 
reached right in the bag and, and took a second. And this process went on throughout the partaking of the bag of cookies there, and she was growing a little more agitated as she watched this going on, to ultimately she realized that it was down to the last cookie in the bag. And before she could get to it, this man actually reached in, took the cookie out, gave her a smile, broke it in half, gave her a portion, and then partook of the other portion himself. Well, I mean, at this point, this she is just dumbfounded and disgusted that this man would actually do such a thing. She is just shocked and angry at her seatmate. But the greatest surprise was yet to come. Because as she was leaving the plane, grumbling under her breath, completely frustrated, as she got down toward the end of the runway, she reached into her purse to grab something, and laying on top was those bag of cookies that she had bought herself as she was running through the airport. And you know, as you hear something like that, as I heard that story, I think to myself, ouch. You know, isn't it truly amazing how absolutely angry and critical we can become towards the sins of others and yet be so blind to our own mistakes and our own failures that we're often committing ourselves? You know, the passage in front of us this morning is really a very good illustration of that reality. That's a lot of what this text we're studying this morning is about, sort of having a, a superior attitude ourselves in such a way whereby it leads to us being very critical towards others and being absolutely in some ways blind or just ignoring our own guilt or sins and shortcomings. And we're going to see from Romans chapter 2, it's a passage that teaches us that we need to recognize that the right to judge really belongs to God himself, and more than that, that God judges rightly, or God judges righteously, unlike you and I in humanity. And because of that, everyone has their own share of personal guilt in their lives. In fact, you notice in our reading as we were going through, there's at least seven references to judge or judgment here in this passage. And let's remember as we're going through these first few chapters together again by way of just refresher, or if you're new here this morning to our study in Romans, chapters one through three in the book of Romans basically are a strategic portion of this letter to try and bring in a sense the awareness of the guilt the equal guilt of everyone in humanity to the irreligious and the religious to the unrighteous to the self-righteous to the person who is moral to the person who is immoral that every person in all of humanity is equally sinful before a holy God and his standards and we all share that in common that we fall short each person needs to be saved by Jesus. We all need the forgiveness of our sins and every one of us needs to be made right with God in order to have a right relationship with him and to be prepared to stand before him and have access into his presence one day. And chapter one, as we studied it together already, basically was the, the judicial indictment, if you would, against the immoral. It's the indictment against the immoral, that is, those who live open, just brazen lives in immoral ways. I mean, we saw a list of things uh, sort of ripped off there at the end as Paul was just finishing out the, the first chapter there where he mentions some, you know, 23, 24 different 
immoral practices and behaviors. He went through that list there, kind of describing, again, those who practice sin without any concern for restraint. Uh, They have no sense of conscience over it, uh, whether what's right or wrong, whether, again, it was homosexuality or adultery or or fornication or hating God and being very, you know, atheistic in their approach to life or whether it's being violent or a murderer or disobedient. I mean, he just ran through this list of immoral practices, indicting the immoral person. Well, as he comes to chapter 2 now, which we begin this morning, this is now God's indictment against the self-righteous person. That is the individual who is self-righteous in that they actually have some morals in the way that they live. Uh, The indication being that maybe they're keeping somewhat of even a religious lifestyle. They're a moral person. They're actually trying to live better than the rest of humanity or those who are just doing barbaric or brazenly evil things in the culture. And as a result of that, they then feel morally superior to others around them living in immoral ways. They find themselves beginning to have no sense of real guilt for their own life before God. And you're going to see that from God's perspective, doesn't matter what a person thinks of himself, from God's perspective, the moralist or the self-righteous, they may sin less, but they're not sinless. Do you understand that? They may sin less. Oh, I don't do this. And I'm those people, oh, and that, this, you know, these, you know, I had, in fact, somebody come to my door, a door knocker yesterday, the Jehovah's Witness, who, you know, I, I'm fully aware now that it's, you know, an, an anti-Christian cult, so I don't really entertain much of their time. But, you know, he began the conversation as he knocked on the door. He basically said hello to me. And the first few things, are, you know, are you sick and tired of all these evil, filthy, rotten, disgusting, you know, people on the earth? And, 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 and do you realize that it's only us good and decent and moral people that are going to get, and you know, that same kind of perspective that somehow everyone else is just so much more filthy and disgusting. And, and this is the attitude that begins to develop the bible shows with sort of the self-righteous where they begin just because maybe they sin less from a practicing standpoint of what we see outwardly from a human perspective god says but you're not sinless you're still guilty before a holy god you still miss the standard of perfection like everyone else and in fact oftentimes from my perspective and maybe your own experiences Many times, the moral person, the, the, even the religious lifestyle in a person makes them the most self-deceived because their, their conscience is somewhat padded by the fact that, well, I mean, I, I do some pretty good things and I certainly aren't doing what those people out there are doing. So it's almost as if their conscience is desensitized and they're the most self-deceived because they don't realize their true need. No doubt, as Paul was going through chapter 1, reading and talking through these things as the people were hearing this letter read and they're reading the list and hearing about God's indictment against the homosexual and God's indictment against murderers and thieves and fornicators and adulterers and those who do these evil things. No doubt there were people listening to those shameful practices who within themselves were thinking, yeah, that's right, amen, those people are a disgrace. They're despicable. They deserve the judgment of God. I'm with you. I like this letter. I can't wait to hear the next chapter. And Paul said, oh, I bet you can't. 
Because he now begins the second chapter by saying, okay, it's that type of mindset that I need to challenge and address as well. And that's what we get to in our passage this morning. He says, verse 1, Therefore you are also, he says, inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For whenever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, he says, practice the same things. Now here in verse 1, notice the scripture identifies or pictures the the self-righteous person. And the problem, particularly with the self-righteous person, as I said, is, is they develop a morally superior attitude that then leads to, in a sense, becoming severely critical towards people who are practicing maybe immoral things that they themselves have not or would not and don't agree with. I think the question to ask is basically this. Where does an attitude of moral superiority come from? Where does that come from? Well, it comes from typically a few things. First of all, it it develops because maybe perhaps you or maybe perhaps the moral person, maybe they haven't practiced, committed outwardly, let's say, sexual immorality. Maybe they've never lived a lifestyle of homosexual practice. Maybe they've never committed adultery against their spouse. Maybe they've never committed fornication. They haven't slept with anyone prior to marriage. They maintained their virginity and and they they kept them. So they've never committed sexual immorality. And as a light of that, they don't have a sense of, of, of appreciation for what it means to fail in that way. Maybe they've never murdered someone or they've never abused someone or robbed a bank or broke into a house. Maybe they're not a hater of God. They're actually reverent towards God. They may not follow him, but at least they're reverent and respectful. It's not for me, but but I I certainly think we should be respectful towards church-going people and towards God. And and maybe they've never been very anti-God in their attitudes. Maybe they've never become a drunk or a drug addict or they're not greedy and arrogant and using people. And, And because they've never participated in those things... And then on top of that, maybe they have convictions even against those things, so they've refrained from them themselves, having not participated, and they take a strong stand and will even articulate that they strongly disagree with people who do those kind of things. And the result of that then leads, unfortunately, to sometimes a real sense of moral superiority towards those who have done those things or to those who are doing those things. And such a person then begins to view themselves as a far better individual than others who are committing those kind of, in a sense, immoral practices. And this sense of superiority of somehow, therefore, I actually do have a superior status because I don't sink to the low depths that other people I know have sunk to. And what then does a morally superior attitude cause? Well, you see it right here in our verses this morning, in our text in verse 1 and onward, it causes a critical spirit, a critical spirit towards others in humanity. They feel entitled to judge another. Notice even just here in verse 1 in our text, three times. I mean, it's pretty repetitious. It's intended to have emphasis to make it evident. Three times Paul identifies the morally superior person as he says, you who judge another. He three times says it in just the first verse, you who judge another. They gravitate towards being a self-appointed judge 
of others in humanity. They gravitate towards severely condemning evil and wrongdoing. In fact, when you look at the term judge that Paul uses there, it's not a term that indicates making a fair observation. In other words, you make a judgment about a situation. A referee tries to make a fair observation in a sporting event that's, that's judging in that sense. That word judge, crino, that's used there is a term that means to make a determination. As if you are absolutely certain it's a determination that that person, in a sense, should be denounced and should be damned and condemned and punished because of what they do. It's judging in a critical sense. That's the term that's used here and the idea that's being implied. Feeling entitled to condemn people spiritually and even eternally for the way they live and for what they're doing. And see, what is wrong in that is it usurps the role of God. That's God's prerogative. That's God's prerogative to make those kind of strong, clear determinations regarding someone's life and the condition of their soul. Now, listen, to keep things in balance, let us not forget, the Bible does not prohibit altogether making judgments. And we need to be careful here. The Bible doesn't prohibit making judgment in appropriate ways with people. I understand you well know the ungodly person, their favorite Bible verse, judge not lest you be judged. Or how about the backslider's Bible? First verse in it, he who is without sin cast the first stone. That's in the backslider's Bible. You know, we have the men's Bible, the women's Bible, the, we have the backslider's Bible. He who is without sin cast the first stone. Don't you judge me, man. You don't have a right to judge me. Listen, the Bible is very clear and God is very evident in what he tells us in his word that we are to use discernment and we are to use discernment to evaluate fruit in people's lives, not for condemnation, but for identification. And that's a big difference, not for condemnation, but for identification. Jesus himself, God in the flesh, said, you will know people by their fruit. A bad tree can't bear good fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit. And Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. What's he saying? Observe the way people live and you can tell the condition of their heart. Jesus said, you can make those observations. You can be a fruit inspector for identification. Doesn't give you the right for condemnation, but for identification. Jesus himself said, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. The same chapter, Matthew 7, where Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged warning against a critical spirit and oh see that don't you judge you can't judge me don't try listen read on man it's in the same chapter that jesus says but also beware of dangerous people who are hypocrites and fakes and and people who say one thing but yet they live in a complaint and jesus said in the same chapter beware of of those who who wear sheep's clothing but there are wolves underneath in the same chapter he says in balance the same thing Jesus says, don't cast your pearls before swine. There is a place for proper judgment in different spheres of life. There's a place for proper judgment within the family where parents should evaluate and exercise judgment in a disciplinary form against their children for their own benefit and their own development. 
There's a place for proper and healthy judgment, observations, and even discipline if necessary for those in authority within a local church. If, if someone has become sinful in their practices or there are unhealthy people or sinful issues whereby, in a sense, there's a judgment made and things exercised to do what? To awaken some, somebody from the error of their way. And to try and snatch them out of their deception or their destructive way or to protect the rest of the flock so they're not polluted or ravaged by some wolf that wants to come in and just prey on people. There's a place for proper judgment in our judicial system. We need to remember that. We're, we're moving far away from that. There's a place for proper judgment with the police department exercising enforcement to keep society under control. God has ordained these things. Without them, the world would be a mess. So we need to be careful and keep in proper balance so that we don't get out of kilter here. However, what Paul's dealing with here is that morally superior attitude of the religious or moral person who develops, in a sense, in a wrong way. They slip into a self-righteous spirit, which then leads them to become critical in their spirit towards other people. That is the issue at hand here in our text this morning and what Paul is challenging here in verse 1, why he says, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For whoever you judge, he says another, you're actually condemning yourself because you practice the same things. Now listen to the way another translation renders this. Here, another translation renders the same verse. You may be saying, what terrible people you have been talking about. That is in chapter 1. He says, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse for when you say they are wicked and should be punished, you're actually condemning yourself for you do the very same things. This is the point that Paul is going to make here. The problem of the moral and religious person is they get a distorted perspective where they become blinded to their own shortcomings and failures and they fail to recognize or to acknowledge their own personal guilt. They ignore and dismiss the reality, as Paul says here in verse 1, at the end of the verse, that they practice the same things. And they fail to realize it, or they refuse to acknowledge it, again, by way of what we said a few minutes ago. Perhaps, okay, perhaps maybe you're here this morning, and you've never committed sexual immorality. You've never committed adultery, you never had sex outside of marriage, and you've never committed sexual morality in that practice. So because of that, you feel very strongly about that. Maybe you even criticize those who do. And you would strongly condemn those who do. But even though you don't commit sexual morality in practice, are you watching pornography on your computer? Or are you violating another biblical command if you're a married person and you're refraining and not giving sexual expression to your spouse? Because that's a biblical command too. And see, it's very easy for us to point the finger at one thing when the reality is, is God's okay. Well, maybe you're not doing that, but you're doing the same thing in another form. Or it's very easy for us to be very strong in our conviction and judge and denounce those who commit violent crimes or murder or abuse people. But then isn't it amazing how we can feel strongly about that, but we have no sense of, of, of qualm within ourselves that we can be very violent and abusive in the way that we speak to other people. And we can crush someone's spirit, in a sense, murder a person or, or decapitate someone by just an outburst of wrath in a very violent, aggressive, hurtful way in just the way that we talk to someone. Or we can feel very strongly about people who, you know, 
break into houses or steal purses from people who are you know disabled and we get so you know upset and alarmed and, and i understand there's a balance in it but by the same token again let us never forget isn't it amazing how then we can somehow justify that maybe it's okay for us to steal or take things that don't sincerely belong to us in other ways we take money under the table and we rob proper taxes that we should be paying according to law that's stealing we maybe take things from work or we steal time for our employer we, we, we in ways take things that don't that's stealing in the same way that's being a thief just in a completely different form but it's practicing the same things we deny this person's so dishonest these you know but isn't it amazing how in subtle ways we can be a little dishonest in our communication in a vocational way with a customer or we can deceive in a way to keep ourselves out of a situation and, and we commit the exact same things many a times even when we're so quick to point the finger towards someone else. And the point here is judging people strongly for their wicked practices and failing to recognize that at times in some form or measure we are guilty of the exact same practice. Maybe it's not an external practice but maybe it's an internal participation within our heart remember jesus in matthew chapter 5 addressed that he said you know you've heard that it was said you shall not murder whoever murders will be in danger of judgment but i say to you whoever is angry with his brother in his heart you're just as susceptible to the judgment of god you, you you've murdered you know how many people i have murdered in the last week just driving i mean it's, it's astonishing and i'm not even a good driver I'm not. You can ask my wife. I can honestly tell you, my wife and, and my daughter's been driving for a year probably drives better than I do already. I'm not a good driver. But I can't stand if you don't drive good in front of me or in back of me. And it's amazing how we, you know, the anger, you, you just murder someone without, the only difference is, is they weren't close enough for you to get your hands on their neck. Or Jesus said, you know, you shall hurt, shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you've already looked at a woman to lust after her in your heart, he says, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And see, this is the thing from God's perspective, he's trying to remind us of a reality. And isn't this true? Isn't it amazing how strongly we can react to the sins and shortcomings of others while truly ignoring the reality of our own failures and sins? And many times in the same things, just in a different form and in a different measure. You know, for extra homework, I would encourage you to read 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 with the life of David, and you can see that illustrated right there in the scripture. Well, since moral people practice the same things as the immoral, just in a different form, that's why Paul says here, he says, you, oh man, you're unexcusable because you're practicing the same thing. In other words, he's reminding us God doesn't judge or grade on a curve. Granted, the practice of some sins, I will acknowledge, granted the practice of some sins carry a much bigger consequence in the way the punishment and pain and problems fall out in the world. But from an eternal spiritual perspective, the reality is guilt of sin and failure before God is the same. We're all sinners. We all fall short. And that's why he says, and whatever you judge another, you're condemning yourself. The reason, he says, because you're practicing the same things. See, as, if, as I criticize or set a standard in some way at times of what deserves punishment, and then if I'm doing the same thing just in a different form, he says, look, you're actually condemning yourself because you're setting standards and you don't even keep those standards yourself. 
That's why Jesus pointed out what he did in Matthew 7, judge not, for with judgment you judge, you also will be judged. We set the standard and then we don't even fulfill it ourselves. And the Bible is just wanting the moral person to realize they're still a sinner. They're still a sinner. He wants the moral person, the religious person to realize you still need a savior just like any other. We all do. See, from my observation, here's what I've kind of seen. There are reprobate, immoral sinners out in the world. And then there are refined, moral sinners all over the world. Both exist, but they're both sinners. And they're both equally falling short of God's standard. They both need Jesus. And the reason that's important is because God, who is just and holy and perfect, judges with righteous judgment. And that's the point of understanding our condition that the Bible is wanting us to come to terms with in this second chapter here. So after discussing that faulty wrong judgment, he says, verse 2, but we know, he says, that the judgment of God, notice, the judgment of man is what was just discussed. He says, but now we know the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. So notice, God will judge. In his perfect way and in the right time, he says here, the judgment of God is a very real thing. And in the remaining verses here, as we go through them, what Paul's going to do now is show aspects and principles of God's righteous judgment, that God has the right to judge and that God always judges in a right way. That's the distinction there. First of all, in regards to aspects or principles of God's judgment, if you're a note taker, first of all, we see regarding God's judgment that unlike humanity, the judgment of God, verse 2 tells us, the judgment of God is according to truth. The judgment of God is according to truth. The standard by which God uses to judge is the complete truth about every matter and every detail and every situation. Because he is God, he knows all things, unlike people. He's not missing any information of what happened or what didn't happen or what the thought or the motive behind. God's standard of judging is according to truth. It tells us in Psalm 96, 13, for he is coming, coming to judge the earth and he shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. See, this is where we get a little off track because as humans, even in our best effort in our judicial system or in good stewardship, we try, but often human judgment, would you agree, it's not based in truth alone. The reason for that is many because a lot of times we're missing information or somebody's hiding certain information. A lot of times human judgment is distorted because we don't have all the facts or it's not according to truth because we have personal feelings involved in the situation. Or maybe we have preconceived ideas or our personal experiences in life affect the way that we judge this situation as compared to that situation. Human beings are easily manipulated by other people and they're deceived and we can draw wrong conclusions and have wrong agendas. So because of that, human judgment is always, at times, often quite flawed. And we see the results of that. What typically happens in every day? Sometimes you are wrongly judged and misunderstood, correct? 
You're wrongly judged. You're misunderstood by your spouse or a co-worker or a friend. Or, and, and you're wrongly misinterpreted, misunderstood, and you're judged wrongly because that person didn't judge according to truth. And many times on top of that, we as well are guilty of wrongly judging others. Who in this room has not? Judge someone wrongly. Maybe you thought really well about a person and you were all excited and then you find out the reality. Oh, that's what they're really like. Or on the flip side of that, maybe you start out thinking very negatively towards a person and you're critical and you draw conclusions and you don't have a, and you're just observing some things. So, so you have a very negative attitude and then come to eat some humble pie. You realize you were wrong. You were wrong about that person. And see, we all experience this, but not with God. Because why? God has all the facts. God's not missing any information. He judges according to truth. He knows what's transpired because he's seen and he's aware of everything. Hebrews 4.13 says, There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked or uncovered and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Proverbs 15 tells us the eyes of the Lord are in every place. See, God has observation of everything. He has perfect, adequate records of everything that's transpired in your life. He's not missing a detail. And more than that, he knows beyond your behavior and your actions, he knows, Psalm 44 says, he knows the secrets of the heart. So even he knows the purpose why you did what you did. From God's perspective, it's not just what you did. God says, no, I, I, of course I know what you did, but I also know why you did it. I also know why you did say that the way that you said that. You may have fooled everybody else, but I know why you said that. Or I know why you did that. He even knows the motive and the purpose behind our heart. It's that deep and searching. Though we may deceive other people, that doesn't work with God. Because God judges according to truth because he knows the truth about everything you've done in your entire life. And because of that, it's a sobering reality. Realize he has perfect records and he knows all the facts. That's why Paul says, let us remember the judgment of God is according to truth. God has 100% accuracy and everything he judges, no one will ever be able to question. There's never going to be any purpose or reasoning behind arguing with God's judgment being unfair because his judgment is flawless. It's a different type of judgment than human judgment. And that should cause even the most self-righteous person who thinks they're pretty good to realize they're actually pretty bad. That the reality is God's aware of everything and his standard has no variation when he judges and no one will fast talk God to get themselves out of a situation. It just doesn't happen. It just doesn't work. Verse 3, he goes on to say, And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things, and yet, notice, doing the same, he says again, that you will escape the judgment of God? Again, Paul reemphasizes the error of those who feel very emboldened to condemn, again, the pagan, heathen, immoral people around them, while actually doing, in a different form, the same things, maybe in their own life. And he asks this searching question here in verse 3. He says, tell me, is this what your thought process is, O man, he says? You who are judging those practicing the very same things that you're doing, are you actually thinking that you're going to escape the judgment of God? Is, is that what you're thinking? 
Do you really believe that somehow you're going to escape your own wrongdoing? And that question is intended to provoke a wake-up call to reality. He's saying, do you really think, do you really think that you're going to be able to be the exception and escape the judgment of God? The point here regarding God's judgment is, secondly, not only does God judge according to truth, but God's judgment is unescapable. It's unescapable. It's unavoidable. Now, again, let's be honest. Sometimes in this life, the judicial system, crimes, whatever, things that we do on this earth, sometimes people are able, are they not, to escape human judgment. That, you know, something goes wrong in a trial, and there's, you know, or people are just really good at covering, and, and we have the capability, you worked hard at it when you were a kid, when you did something wrong, to not get the spanking. We have the ability sometimes, I know I did, I had a father like a machine gun hand, you know, go through a door and go through that doorway, you know, and he could launch me through the door. Wasn't abusive. But I didn't want to get caught, and if I could escape somehow, the Judgment of Father, hey, at times, I did it. I confess. There you go. My dad's in the room. <laughs> Cleanse myself. Nobody loves, but we have the ability, humanly speaking, we avert and we escape human judgment. Listen, from God's perspective, that's not possible. The Bible's saying it's not possible to escape God's judgment now or eternally because why? God's got all the facts. He judges according to truth, and he must do what is true and right in every situation. Genesis 18 says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He must. He's a perfect judge. So judgment is inescapable. Ecclesiastes 12.14 says, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing. 1 Peter 4.15 says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And see, both presently and eternally, God's judgment is unescapable. We need to remember this because sometimes people can fall into a situation where they begin to live in some sinful practice. Maybe you're a Christian and you backslide. Or maybe you don't know the Lord yet and you've got your little kind of thing going on over here that's clearly wrong and disobedient and you're thinking that you're going to somehow escape the judgmental consequences that are attached to that wrong behavior. And this can be a very grievous problem. Galatians 6-7 says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. He who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. Proverbs 14, 14 says, The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways. Listen, sinful practices produce pain and problems, and the corrupt fruit and crop will come in time. You can't sow to the flesh and pray for crop failure. It doesn't work. You can't plant apple seeds. And say, yeah, but I'm trusting I'll still get an orange tree. It doesn't work. Hey, this morning, if you're in the midst of that today and wrongly thinking that you're the exception and you're going to somehow avoid the consequences, can I encourage you to wake up to reality? Cut it short now 
And the consequences will be diminished the sooner you cut off the path of that wrong behavior. And it's not just presently God's judgment, but ultimately the more grievous thing is the eternal aspect of judgment. Because other times people thinking they're going to escape the judgment of God are those who wrongly rest in moral and religious lifestyles. And because they're resting in a moral religious lifestyle, they believe that they're safe. And somehow they're then good enough to just be embraced by God on their terms as good as they are because they have a sense they're good enough. And they wrongly think, here's what happens, a moral religious person wrongly begins to think that the judgment of God is for really bad people. And I'm a pretty good person because I do this or I don't do that or you know I, I've done these benevolent things or I follow these you know, rituals or principles. Look, do you think that just because you're not as bad as Osama bin Laden, that you're not bad? You're still sinful. You still fall short. You still fail. Your own sins are not something that you can somehow brush aside. You're still going to need to give account. Your list may not be as long, but one error is error. One flaw is a flaw. And God's a holy and a righteous judge. And have you this morning, I pray by the grace of God not, but have you this morning wrongly believed, please hear me, that you are good enough to escape God's righteous judgment? Just because you may not be like someone else, perhaps according to your standards, but we're going by God's standards. And that is the important thing. And the danger here is a wrong mindset, he says, where we begin to think a person will begin to think this way. Listen, the only way to avoid the judgment of God spiritually and eternally is one way. That's to turn to Jesus Christ who can deliver us from the wrath to come that we all deserve as sinners because Jesus came, lived sinlessly the way that we don't and then died substitutionally in our place and he took the wrath that I deserve. He took the punishment that you deserve and therefore he is the only righteous judge who can say, therefore, I will grant you pardon. I will grant you forgiveness if you receive me as Savior and Lord. That is the only way to avoid the judgment of God for any person by believing upon those things and responding to Jesus in faith. Paul goes on to say, verse 4, Do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing, again, that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. So here we see another aspect of God's judgment, and that's this, that God's judgment is patiently delayed and it is purposely held back. Why? Look at verse 4. To give time for repentance. The judgment of God is according to truth. God's judgment is unescapable. And God's judgment is patiently delayed and purposely held back to give time for repentance. That's the point that Paul is making here. Because of great amounts of God's goodness, he is incredibly patient with people. He's incredibly patient, even in their sin. Despite all the things that we do wrong, the Lord is so long-suffering. And the idea of long-suffering means that he suffers through a lot of mistreatment, a lot of dishonor, a lot of disrespect, a lot of despisal towards him and his ways, and people doing wrong things, and he will suffer in that way for a really long time because he's that good. 
He's that rich in his mercy and love and grace and God's goodness and long-suffering. He says here, verse 4, then causes his forbearance. That word forbearance means to patiently tolerate wrong and to hold back from a response. It speaks of how God delays his judgment, how God refrains from immediate punishment and even holds back consequences. Now, sadly, in relation to that truth, what happens is people can grossly misinterpret the delay of God's judgment or discipline in their life, whereby they begin to, I mean, I, I'm quite honest, I've even heard people say to me before, yeah, I mean, yeah, I know I'm doing this, but I mean, my business is going great still and everything's okay. And I mean, I, I, it's not like God's plaguing us. Nobody in the family's got cancer. I mean, life's pretty good. I mean, yeah, yeah, I know I'm doing this, but I mean, everything seems to be going fine still. And there's this subtle deception of the devil where in the midst of those things, a perspective becomes distorted and a person grossly misinterprets God's forbearance and his delay because of his goodness and his mercy. Because God's so good, he's still blessing because he's a good God. And people misinterpret that as if somehow God's powerless. Or God's too preoccupied with the really messed up people in the world. He, he's not really worried about the little things that I'm doing here in my private life. Or that worse, sometimes even believing that God's actually giving endorsement or approval. Where somebody actually begins to believe, well look, I think God just understands my situation. He understands my heart. He understands my situation's unique. So in the idea, somehow they're getting a special pass or approval. And he says, when this happens, a person is despising. They're having contempt for the goodness and kindness and the love of God. And they're missing the whole point of what God's doing, which is this. He says, don't you realize the goodness of God is intended to lead you to repentance? The whole point of why God is good is not to let his goodness be abused. The reason why God's long-suffering and good and kind even in the midst of our sin and wrongdoing is he's wanting his goodness to so shame us in, into a softened heart where we go, oh my gosh, Lord, I've been such an idiot. I have been so wrong. And you've been so patient. You could have smoked me so long ago. And, Lord, and, and that that would cause us to come to a place where our hard heart would melt into humble surrender where we would want to change and we would want to actually be led to repentance, which is a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. Again, the Bible speaks of this continuously. Second Peter 3 says, The Lord is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. Hey, please hear me this morning. If you wrongly think that you are getting away with something because there has been a delay in God bringing consequence for what you're doing and God hasn't stepped in yet, please, please hear me. All you are doing is running out of room and running out of time because the gap of God's forbearance is diminishing and eventually judgment will come. God can't be mocked. Be very, very careful. This is an incredible deception where we can begin to think and despise God in very distorted ways. Verse 5, Paul goes on to say, But in accordance with your hardness and impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So Paul warns here, notice, of the danger of a hard and unrepentant heart. He warns here of a person who's stubbornly refusing God, 
rejecting his voice of testimony to them regarding their own condition and refusing his word. And he speaks, notice in verse 5, of a heart condition that's characterized by what? Hardness and being impenitent. A heart that's characterized by hardness, that is, it's calloused, it's lost feeling. It's lost a sense of con concern for what's right or wrong. It's cold and unsensitive. Impenitent speaks of being stubbornly unrepentant, being defiant. The idea is having no remorse for doing what's wrong anymore, having lost any sense of conviction, unapologetic, unrepentant. He says when a heart gets in that condition, what it does is it despises the goodness of God. He says as you do that, you are treasuring up or storing up wrath towards yourself. It's like a dam that's there and the water level is just building up and rising on the other side and eventually that pressure is going to cause that thing to come crashing through with incredible force. And he says this is what some are doing regarding the judgment and the wrath of God towards their lives. Isn't it interesting to take note the Bible clearly is indicating here to us that it seems it's the moral person, not the prostitute on the street or the drug addict or, or the person that's murders it's not that person that needs to be convinced that they're a sinner and they desperately need a savior but it's the moral self-righteous person it's the religious person that many times fails to what see their need they just fail to realize their true condition before a holy god and this is what the bible is trying to drive home look at verses six through ten he says God at his judgment will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and don't obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on the soul of every man who does evil, of the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The point Paul's making here in verses 6 through 10, and I know it's a, a lengthy set of words there. A lot of it, again, you can see he's reiterating in a repetitious way. The point Paul's making regarding God's judgment there is simply this, that God's judgment is also according to our deeds. You say, wait a minute here. Deeds, works. What the passage we're looking at is not about God's salvation. We're very clear in the Bible that God's salvation has nothing to do with works or deeds or earning it. We're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. The Bible is very clear. This passage isn't talking about how to obtain God's salvation. We'll get to that in later chapters. This passage is talking about the way and the principles whereby God uses to judge. And it tells us here that one aspect of God's judgment is it's in accordance with with one's deeds and how a person has lived. That's why he says in Psalms, quoting Psalm 62 there in verse 6, that God will render to each one according to their deeds. You see that principle throughout Scripture. Jeremiah 10, Matthew 16 and 17, that God rewards and God punishes according to one's deeds. And this makes total sense. That's why Paul in verses 6 and 7 says to us there what he does in verses excuse me 7 and 8 that eternal life 
are, is for those who by patient continuance and doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. The point he's making there is if a person seeks to honor God and to live for God's glory with their life, well, it's evident that there's someone who's destined for eternal life because of the way that they're living. It's revealing itself. The point the Bible's making is man's deeds and fruit are clear evidence of what he believes in his heart. God is saying, from my perspective, what you believe always influences the way you behave. When you look at the conduct of a person, it indicates what their convictions are. What you believe will always influence the way that you behave. And the way that you behave always indicates what you really believe, no matter what you're actually saying. That's the point he's making repetitiously here in our text in verses 6 through 10. This reality that, that if a person is seeking the glory and honor of God and they're seeking to honor the Lord, he's saying, well, that's an indication that that person's destined for eternal life. And on the flip side of that, he says, when a person is self-seeking and they won't submit to the gospel and its claims, they won't accept Jesus Christ, he says, and that's a clear indication that person's lost. That's why they're living like that. It just indicates what they believe in their heart. And he says, therefore, that person is going to experience, notice, indignation and wrath from the Lord that they rejected. One day they're going to be cast into the lake of fire where there's eternal torment or anguish. And Paul inserts this phrase two times in our text here. He says that's true both for the Jew and also for the Greek. Again, the Jew received first opportunity to the gospel, but the Gentile got the gospel presented as well. And he's saying so both are equally responsible to God and God's not going to give special favoritism to anyone at all that's why he says in conclusion verse 11 for there's no partiality with God and he'll, he'll move into this same concept it's sort of a hinge verse as we go forward next week he's saying God grants no special exceptions he doesn't give favoritism to anybody to the religious and to the irreligious he says both need to be saved to the moral to the immoral both need to be saved and hey, this morning, let me leave you with this thought. Maybe rather than being so preoccupied and so concerned and critical of the sins of others, maybe it would be better if we were more personally concerned with where we stand with God ourselves. Instead of being so concerned about the sins of another, maybe it's more important to be concerned with your own standing before God and make sure that's right.